You're listening to Therapy for Your Money, a podcast about all things money and finance for therapy practice owners. If you want to feel confident and in control of your financial life, then you've come to the right spot. I'm your host, Julie Harris. I'm an accountant and the owner of Green Oak Accounting. My firm specializes in working with private practices across the U.S., and my team and I have worked with hundreds of private practice owners. I'm on a mission to share all the best practices I've learned along the way because I want you to have a profitable private practice. Hi, everyone. Today, we're talking about scaling your practice to seven figures. My guest today is Maureen Warbach from the Group Practice Exchange. Maureen, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me come on. I'm really excited about this podcast. Yeah, me too. It seems like everyone in the therapy space must know your name, but would you tell us a little bit about yourself anyways? Sure. I own a group practice in Chicago that I started in 2012 and has grown to, at this point to around 40 employees in three locations. And then I also have the group practice exchange, which is where I help other people start a group practice and scale their group practices. And then my third business is a partnership with Mike Blumberg, and that's a yearly conference for group practice owners. So clearly I I niche to group practices. (laughs) Yeah. And you're a busy lady. Yeah. Today's topic in my, you know, accounting firm, we get tons of questions on how to scale to a seven figure group practice and what that looks like and the logistics behind that. So that's what we're chatting about today. So for my comment first is seven figures doesn't matter if there's no profit. So there has to be profit for it to, to make sense, but really, you know, scaling a practice is a numbers game. You have to have enough space, enough employees. So how do you decide when it's time to hire or add space or expand? I get this question a lot. You know, I'm a metrics person as as you are too. So I have a, a little bit of a metric that I used, especially when I was starting off in a smaller group practice. Now we have the ability to sort of hire when we want and we can hire multiple people at the same time just because we are larger. But when we were first starting off and through the first few years of having our group practice, I used a metric that I felt like was really helpful to me. And that was as, and this is a general, kind of a general rule I followed, but as a clinician that I hired got to around 70% full, whatever that full means, that was when I would decide on bringing on another person. So obviously it's part of the business, you know, you have to think of your business plan on if you want to grow, but if you know you want to grow, the decision on when to bring the next person in for me came at when a clinician was around that 70% mark, we would start putting ads out, interviewing and bringing on uh, another clinician and with the assumption that that time that it would take to find that person, bring them on, onboard them. Uh, at that point, the previous clinician would be closer to the 90-ish, 100% mark of being full so that we could then focus on the next person. That's kind of the safe way of doing it. And that's what I did, you know, for the first maybe 10 or so clinicians that I brought on. And when you say full, do you mean um, you know, when you hire someone, do you have a specific number of hours in mind that they're going to be available and like filling up that availability? Yeah. When I first started, that number was much lower, and that's typically the case when you're starting off, you're a little bit afraid about what it, you know, takes to fill a clinician up. So the threshold is usually a little lower. I've seen new group practices that bring on people who, and it also depends on if they're contractors or employees, there's, you know, some extra costs with employees 
that might make it, you know, not worth it to have them working one or two hours a week. But when I first started, 10 hours was the expectation that they would be able to do. And that's since increased, I found, you know, with just how I run my business and the benefits that they get and the operating expenses around the individual clinicians, 10 client hours is kind of the break-even amount of where they're sort of covering their costs. So I think that's important to figure out, you know, with your group practice or whoever's listening, that number might be a little bit different depending on how much you're covering and paying for with your staff. That'll kind of guide what that minimum amount is. So now it's at 20 client uh, hours or 25 client hours per week that we we look for. So that's full time for us. And that's the max that we require. Um, but that's all we look for. And, and it has a lot to do with workplace culture. We find that the people that are putting kind of all their eggs in our ba- our group practice basket tend to be more invested in the practice. They tend to contribute more to the workplace culture. And, and for us, that's what's most important. Okay. And so what at what point did the shift happen from the 10 minimum requirement to 25? It sort of evolved little by little. It was 10, then it was 15, okay. and, then it, and then 25. It didn't go to 20. Once you get, there's a point where it feels, you feel safe going straight to 25. And it obviously has to be part of the business plan too. There are practices that want to have, you know, just a smaller practice with part-time employees. You know, there's a case to be made that having part-time employees, if a person leaves, there's less of a a financial hit to the group practice when it's part-time versus a full-time person. But I find that aside from the culture piece, you know, part-time people tend to work elsewhere as well, or just aren't in the office as much. So aren't able to contribute as much to the culture. There's also more, there's more work involved in recruiting and bringing on new people. And if you're bringing on a bunch of part-time people, it's just more work to get to recruit them, to hire them, to onboard them. That all has a cost to it. And at the end of the day, it's less work and and cheaper to bring full-time people on, even though there there is a potential for more of a financial loss when they leave. We just account for that. Okay. And anecdotally, um, so I don't have any any kind of significant research behind this, but typically practices with full-time employees versus lots of part-timers just tend to be more profitable across the board. But I think that speaks to what you said, like there's a cost to managing managing the employees, scheduling and, and recruiting and all that. Okay. So when do you decide when you're ready for, to add a location or just more space? This really is, there's no science that I have backing this up, but for, for me, I always tell people when, if it's a part of your plan to expand and, and beyond just hiring people, expand either a location or adding location, it really, you know, has to do with a business plan and, and what your vision is for the, for the group practice. So I've added locations before when a current location was still growing because it was going to reach a different market area, a target market. So it really depends if you're wanting to expand where you're really going to reach the same market, it might be worth just expanding an existing space versus adding another location a mile away or two miles away. A lot of group practice owners will say adding a location feels like adding a second business. It's, you know, no matter how you slice it, there's two physical spaces that feel like two physical, you know, different spaces to deal with. And, and, things don't necessarily always translate smoothly from one practice location to another. And that's typically the time when you have to start adding leadership or, you know, team members that can help you manage the location that you might not be at. 
Okay. And so when you're looking for new location, are you looking for a specific area? Are you looking for a deal? How do you approach that piece? For of it? me, it has, I, it has more to do with a uh, need. I, I look at what our referrals are, are asking for that we aren't able to meet. Um, and so when we see that there's people coming from a certain areas, we might look at those areas to see if there's a need. Um, that's historically how we've been doing it. You know, other people do it because it's, they have a plan to reach different areas of their state. For us, it's always been that we wanted to stay kind of condensed so our locations are all not too far away from each other. So, which has been nice for us because as we were growing at the new location, we didn't have to necessarily start a whole new marketing campaign. We were able to shift people who were calling and wanting to go to location one and say, hey, we have location two, it's 10 minutes out of your way that has opening, is that okay with you? And, and for the most part that worked. So it helped with us growing the other locations we have by staying nearby. Got it, so advertising was minimal. Yeah. As, as far as, okay. And are, have you been able to share clinicians between the spaces too? Like, is that an advantage of being somewhat close? It's actually something that I learned I prefer. So I learned a lesson with opening my second location, you know, five or so years ago that the culture didn't easily translate over to the new location. And we found that when we opened our other locations that ensuring that we bring a clinician over or clinicians over that either worked at both locations or, you know, multiple locations or who just left our initial location, which ha is the culture that we love. It's the, you know, our kind of our, our hub that they were able to bring that culture over and it was, is easier to have, you know, that workplace culture flow over. So we, we make sure that when we're thinking of adding a new location that we have staff that are interested in it because we want, we don't want it to be a brand new, fresh space with all new people who don't know what our practice is like, what the culture is like. And because I can't work out of each location, I can't be translating that culture over to the new locations. Okay. That's really interesting. Um, are there any additional locations in your future? I, I was just having a meeting with my clinical director today. So I'm sure I'll be talking to you at some point as my, as my C CFO, but it's, it's likely at some point, I mean, not in 2020, since we just expanded this year, two of our locations grew, but next year is, it's likely that we will. Um, and that's coming from just what the future of therapy or private practice looks like and, you know, wanting to be ahead of the game with that. So um, that's really exciting. Yeah. Very cool. Um, all right. So I would love to hear about how your day-to-day -day activities changed as you were going from, you know, a few hundred thousand a year to that million dollar mark. How did that shift? Yeah, it, it went from me being active in all the day-to-day -day decisions and, and things that were happening to looking and being more a part of the visionary stuff and having to bring on leadership teams to support that. You can't, I mean, it's really hard. I shouldn't say you can't because I'm sure there's a group practice owner doing this, but it's not great to manage a seven figure business and be doing all the things on, on a granular level. So when I, as I was growing, I guess in revenue, but obviously that means growing in space and size. Right. I realized that I needed to have a team of people that can help support the day-to-day -day stuff so that I can look at the visionary things and make sure that the practice as a whole was moving in the direction we needed it to go. So as we, as I got to the seven figure and up 
space, a lot of my time was spent meeting with administrative teams and ensuring that they were doing what was needing to be done, but there was someone in charge of the administrative people on a day-to-day basis. And same with the clinical side. It was when I started bringing on supervisors and clinical directors so that I could, you know, focus on the the larger scale things in the business, like adding locations or um, adding different types of services. Got it. And so at what point did you stop seeing clients altogether? Two and a half, two, two and a half years ago. I probably did so uh, six, six years into having my group practice. And by then, did you have three locations already? I had two. You had two. Okay. So mm-hmm. after two and like, but you were probably, you had probably scaled way back by yeah. then, right? Okay. Yeah. Well, I was actually in a, uh, I think a sort of unique position as a many solo practitioners who decide to go group do it because they're maxed out seeing, you know, 20, 30 clients and having all these referrals. When I started solo, I only did solo for about six months before I brought my first therapist on because I knew I didn't, I had one of my children already at the time and I knew I didn't want to work seeing 20 something clients. So my max was 15. And when I got to 15, I I sort of stopped and that's when I brought someone on. So I never was overwhelmed with client caseload. Um, Obviously I was overwhelmed with managing of a business, but I was always at 15 clients and uh, within maybe after the first three years or so, I dropped down to 10 and I was at 10 for a year or so and then went down to, you know, five to seven. And then about two years ago, for a good year, I had one client for a while. Oh, just <laughs> for the a one. Got just it. the one. And, and that person had been with me for a really, really long time. I mean, before I was even in my own private practice. So. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So did you stop seeing clients like around that million dollar mark a little bit after something like that? Yeah, it's probably right around there, maybe right at it, right below it or right above it, between nine, nine and 1.2, somewhere in that range. Okay. And was that about when you added leadership as well? Well, I brought my clinical director on when we were probably making a hundred thousand a year. Honestly, I I did a weird, I knew from the beginning, I didn't want to be doing it all alone. So my second hire, my first, second, third, fourth, they're all still with me. And my second hire became a clinical director right after I hired my third one, which was like, they were hired within a month apart of each other. So maybe she had been with us maybe seven or eight months. So my group practice was probably a year and a half old at that point when I brought her on and she was doing, you know, one to two hours a week of clinical director work, just managing the two other people besides her. Okay. So she, so most of her work hours were clinical, but then just a little bit of leadership. And then that, ha- that has grown over the years, correct? Yeah. Now she does uh, 10 hours of clients and okay. 20 hours of clinical director work a month. Oh yeah. A week. I mean, and then the like leadership team was built when I opened my third location. When we had two, my clinical director was able to manage the main one and the second one but when we had a third, we knew there was no way for her to lead three locations and all the staff in those three locations in a way that would contribute to the culture that we had. And, you know, at the end of the day, for, for my practice, the culture was the most important piece. And that's when we decided to bring on three supervisors, one for each location. And my clinical director now leads the supervisors and the supervisors 
lead their teams. Each site. There's one supervisor per location, right? Yes. Yeah. Are there any financial or other metrics that you measure for the leadership team? For the group practice as a whole? Yeah. Yeah, we, we do lots of tracking. Aside from all the fun stuff that you track for us as a <laughs> CFO, we track a clinician retention, obviously, um, just to make sure not that we uh, want to be, I mean, obviously, we want to be checking that clinicians are able to do the work in a way that they need to. But we find that clinician retention or client retention, I should say, with each of the clinicians there's a lot that goes into it that plays a role in that uh, from our intake person scheduling the right fit clients to those therapists to the clinician and how they uh, establish rapport and discussions they have around continuing sessions and follow-up appointments all the way to, you know, how they actually do therapy and provide therapy. And so we track that. Uh, we track intakes, how many calls are coming in or inquiries, I should say, whether they're emails or calls or people directly trying to request appointments through our portal, how many inquiries we get and how many of those inquiries convert to clients, and then how many of those clients actually schedule follow-up appointments. So we have um, a director of client experience who sends a questionnaire, very simple questionnaire after the first appointment for each client just to see how things were. It helps catch you know, a client who, for whatever reason, maybe didn't love the appointment or was, didn't schedule a follow-up. And we can kind of scoop in and see what the issue was, see if we can help rectify that, um, whether it's by scheduling an appointment with a different provider because they realize they need something different or even giving a referral out into the community because they realize they need a different style that we don't have. And so those are kind of the, the main metrics. We also track where people are calling from, where we're getting them from, which guides how we do our marketing. And for us, where the mouth is our highest. So, uh, second is Google. And we do Google ads. But those are kind of the, the, the main okay. metrics beyond the financial things. Got it. Beyond financial. And I've seen, I've seen the template that you have in the exchange on the dashboard, right? Is that, yeah. am I using the right word? Do you have a dashboard for all the referrals, where they're coming from, how much they're converting? So mm -hmm. there's a little plug for the exchange. Also like, re yeah, thank you. And also reasons why people don't schedule. So those that don't convert, we have a little system for figuring out what is it? Is it because... They wanted to use insurance that we don't accept. Was it because they realized that we aren't in an area, like they thought we were in a specific area that we're not in? What's the reason for not scheduling? And we have a little pie graph that shows what are the main reasons and that helps guide, you know, future decisions. Okay. Um, whether it's like we should get in with an insurance or not, because there's a lot of referrals coming from that insurance. Not that we, we haven't made a decision like that before, but it can help guide, you know, where to open another location if we're finding that a lot of people are saying, oh, I thought you were closer to downtown. You know, if we were getting a ton of those, it might help guide us to opening another location closer to downtown. So that's a interesting metric that not a lot of people look at either. Okay. And have you ever added services based on that? Like as hired a specialty? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the main thing we've done with why people don't follow up is that they were looking for something um, that we don't offer and we get a lot of them and then realize, you know, that aligns with our business and our values. So let's look for that. And it's Got typically it. been around a specialty area. Okay. So then, that, then you'll recruit specifically for that next time yes. you're looking. Okay. Yes. All right. I'm going to shift gears a little bit. What, what has been the hardest part financially or otherwise of scaling your practice? Truly delegating. 
two things. Mm. Truly delegating is one. I am guilty of being the person that Mike Michalowicz calls the decider versus the delegator, you know, giving things away, but really having my fingers in it. And it's really hard to feel like you've given things away, but still have your fingers in it because it means that you're never truly off. So that's been the hardest part of the journey is really trusting in the people that you bring on and giving them delegating, which means also allowing them to own the outcome of what they do. That's probably the hardest part. And then the second one, which I, I'll say is very close to equal um, for me, and it's not the case, it's not going to be the case for everyone. But I have a little bit of people pleasing in me, as you know. And um, I'm more concerned probably than the average person about how much does everyone like working, where they're at, is there anything we can do? As you know, you're nodding your head right now for those that <laughs> are yeah. listening. I don't know how many emails you've gotten from me that's like, can we offer this extra thing? Can we do this other thing? And you're like, no, like you do a lot. <laughs> There's no more extra income for you to be spreading that stuff out. I think that's another hard piece for me is, you know, how can I create not only a culture, but a space where everyone is, you know, thriving and able to live a financially thriving and healthy life. Okay. I mean, those are really big ones. So delegating the outcome and not just the, the task and then culture. And, yeah. and you've said culture a couple of times on, on a few different topics. So it really is a, a huge priority for you. Was there ever a, a, a point where you considered scaling back? Like we're, getting rid of some stuff. Yeah. Like, was there ever a point in, in the growth where you said, you know what, maybe we should stop here or maybe I should go back to being a solo practitioner. Cause like, I, I feel like that happens a lot with in the three to five clinician space, that point of like, Oh crap, what did I do? Maybe I should just go back to being me. I feel like that happens at every stage. I was going to say, I never thought of reducing, but there are times even now um, where it feels like too much. And so I get it when you're small, it can feel like too much because you're just getting used to leading and managing teams and, and, and having the financial livelihoods of people in, in a way, right? Because you need to make sure that the group practice can survive because now you have people who are relying their income on the group practice. So there's stress around that. And a lot of times smaller practices, especially ones that are first growing, feel like they're making less than they were solo because they're spending yeah. a whole lot of time and, and effort and, and money on having those people. So that's a big reason why people sometimes think about returning back to solo. Um, but the different stresses come up as you grow. And so at every stage, I, I know group owners that are my size and even larger who throw the towel in for one reason or another. And, and usually it has to do with the, all the wheels that are turning that they are ultimately in charge of. And so probably every few months, I think I want to sell this beast, <laughs> <laughs> but it's always momentary for me uh, because it's not, I more often, and it's kind of like a Gottman thing, a uh, couples therapy thing. You know, you want to have more positive experiences than negative ones. And uh, for me, my the group practice is way more often than not a positive experience, one that I feel proud of, one that I'm excited to be connected with the team that I have. But every once in a while, you know, something, a wrench goes in there and it's it feels anxiety provoking or stressful or overwhelming. And then I go, this is a such a huge thing now. You know, it's really hard to scale something so big back. And then I think, well, I should just sell it. And then live this very peaceful life, <laughs> painting pictures. 
<laughs> or something simple, you know. And, and there's this myth almost that like, oh, once I reach seven figures, uh, or like at least this is something I hear often, once I reach seven figures, like things will be easier. And the truth is there is, there are different stresses, but there's definitely stress at each point, yes. right? And there's nothing magical that happens at a million dollars, right? No, no. Just no, a regular day. Arbitrary number, yeah. <laughs> Just an arbitrary number. Yeah. All right. Last question. Uh, what is your favorite business or finance book and why? Oh, man. This is a hard one. So many I just good ones. Name, like, huh? So there many good ones, ones, right? Yeah. Well, to stay in line with your podcast, I'll say Profit First. It is one of my top ones. So it's tied with a couple of others, but sticking in line with financials, Profit First was a game changer in terms of how I look at my business's finances and how I make decisions around uh, hiring and employment and donating money and paying my staff and paying myself, which is a question that happens often. It's like, how do you pay yourself as a group owner? Well, it's super easy when you do profit first. So I'll say that book uh, changed a lot of things for me as a business owner. Okay. I'll tell you, I've gotten that answer a lot. Um, I didn't know you pre-profit first. Like how did that shift things in the business? Yeah. Um, Well, before profit first, I was paying myself based off of what was left over, which is pretty pretty common. Um, So it felt very anxiety provoking because every month I wasn't sure what I would be getting. Going the profit first model really prioritized you know, not only profits, but me paying myself and making everything else work so that I can pay myself. And so it just put everything into a nicer system for me. But yeah, before then, I was just every month saying, okay, what's left in the bank account? Okay, I'll keep a little bit in there in case something happens that I forgot about. And I'll just take this much. But it felt very unorganized and random, you know? Okay. And now there's a system. It's intentional. Yes. That's a great thing. Yeah, it is. Awesome. So tell our listeners where they can find you. You can go to the grouppracticeexchange.com. Everything, my contact information, you know, Facebook group. Join the group. Yep. Podcast. Yep. All of it. All of the fun stuff. Great. Well, Maureen, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. It was nice seeing you. Nice to see you too. All right, listeners, I'd love to know, is scaling to seven figures one of your dreams or do you want nothing to do with it? Head over to therapyforyourmoney.com and send me an email. I'd love to know. Head over to the website at therapyforyourmoney.com and we will link to the group practice exchange and Maureen's podcast so you can check that out. Talk to you soon. If you need some accounting help, head over to therapyforyourmoney.com and click on the Green Oak Accounting button. There you can find out lots of information about my accounting firm and all of our specialized services for private practice owners. The information contained in this podcast represents the host and guest's general opinions and should not be construed as personalized accounting and tax advice. Listeners should consider all facts and circumstances before applying this information and seek appropriate advice from an accountant, financial planner, lawyer, or other professional. Any info provided does not constitute accounting, tax, or legal advice.